Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Interloper Podcast. During our last conversation series, This Isn't For You, we had the privilege to talk to Tola Adewaligan, and we were just so excited about that first conversation that we asked him if he'd be willing to talk to us about our next series, which is called This Land Is My Land. You know, when we released our first one of our first podcasts, uh, it, one of the first one was by Tola, and the feedback that we got, people just loved hearing him talk. And I totally get it. I totally understand why. And so we are very excited to introduce um, part two of this podcast. So this next series that we have is called This Land Is My Land, featuring artists Marina Camargo and Rodrigo Valenzuela. I'm really excited about this series that we're in right now. And you can still check out their work. It's up until August 29th. So if you're in Seattle, definitely check it out. And there's more information on how to do that on our website. We're going to go a little deeper in this conversation about what this land is my land is about. And it is, we're asking these questions about who belongs, which is kind of the point of this podcast, who belongs, who doesn't. But we're going to be diving in this particular series on about land. And we're going to look at this kind of like microcosm of Seattle and then kind of expand that out into different parts of our country and places and also other countries. Yeah. And I think what I love about this series, especially coming on the heels of This Isn't For You, is that it's it's about staking a place for yourself. Like this land is my land. What does it mean to actually claim that? And just as a sense of like ownership, like what do we, how do we define ownership? Who gets to determine ownership? How do we protect ownership? I'm really excited about how we explore those in this conversation series. Should we read the um, curatorials, that little paragraph? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let me uh, let me read in my Dustin voice. There was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. The sign was painted, said private property. But on the back side, it didn't say nothing. This land was made for you and me. That's an original lyric from This Land Is Your Land by Woody Guthrie. This Land Is My Land is a pairing of two solo exhibitions, each artist asking about the impact of the lines we draw between us. Rodrigo Valenzuela's Afterwork explores the significance of redefining physical and digital borders in land and labor, in Marina Camargo's Shifting Displaced, the work examines moving boundaries and the spaces between from the northern and southern hemispheres all the way to a specific Seattle neighborhood. What determines ownership? Landlines, bloodlines, or simply believing this is the right question to ask? That's the statement about this conversation series. Right. And we're going to go more into depth and kind of like break it apart because there's a lot to talk about with this series on another episode. Um, and I was trying to find this quote and I can't remember who it was by but it's a philosopher and it was this idea that you can judge a society's level of justice if you would be willing to be a part of it without knowing what position you would hold interesting yeah it made me think a lot about this upcoming episode with tola because he's kind of breaking down seattle and how divided it is and these different positions that people are in and it makes me think like for a society that talks so much about a place and a city or, or any of our cities where we talk about what is fair and what is equitable and what is just, would you want to move to Seattle if you did not know what position you would be in when you were here? Would you want to move into your hometown? Would you want to go to your church? Would you want to go to your school? Would you want to live in your country if you weren't guaranteed what position in that society you would be before you went?
we're getting ready to curate our next series through Interloper, This Land is My Land. And so it's going to be based in Seattle. And one of the questions I want to ask you, whether we're kind of examining through this, is two questions. One, who belongs in Seattle? And then two, who does Seattle belong to? So to me, Seattle belongs to the upper middle class, really upper middle class white people. That's really who it belongs to. Now, who should it belong to is everyone. Now, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, I'm into statistics and I looked up the median income of a two family, of a two parent household with one child under 18, with at least one child under 18. So a two family household with at least one child under 18. That median income is 202,000. So that means most two parent households in Seattle make over $200,000. If you make under 200,000 or even 200,000 on the dot, you're poorer mm -hmm. than most people here. <laughs> that is ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. This is one of the few cities where the metro area is more racially diverse than the city the the, the city core. So if you want to explain that. So if you look at white uh, non-Hispanics in the city of Seattle, it's about mm -hmm. uh, 64%. So the city is 64% white. King County okay. is about 58% white. So what's basically happening is the people of color live around the city, usually in the South King County, but they live around the city. And what do you have left? You have a upper middle class white population that dominates the city in a way that I think is profoundly damaging. I think it's profoundly damaging. Are there other cities that, that are similar to this or is this very unique to Seattle? So there's three cities that are unique in terms of its wealth demographics. Seattle, San Jose, and San Francisco. But even amongst those cities, you can look at kind of the white population. San Jose is 26%. San Francisco is 40%. Again, Seattle is 64. Hmm. So though their incomes between the three cities are similar, the whiteness of Seattle stands out as being unique. Hmm. And I think it allows them to escape robust discussions on race that other cities cannot. Well, what do you think about the fact that, and I, I am making a generalization here that I can't necessarily back up, but from my experience, it feels like Seattle is trying trying to and often taking this leadership position in the country of leading the conversation about more progressive ideas around race and gender and equity. So taking the framework that you're just talking about, what do you think about that dissonance? I, I, I think, I think it's bullshit. Okay. <laughs> I, I really do. Like, if we were to look at, like, I can pull up the public schools of Seattle and look at the numbers, where black kids go, 
and where Hispanic kids go. And it's extraordinarily on the South side. Yeah. It is extraordinarily heavy on the South side. So it's not like we have a very integrated city. Right. And what I think they're doing is using a poli- using a conversation about the police to not deal with more mm-hmm. important issues. That's important what you're saying. Right. It's very easy for everyone right now, all the spotlights on the police. So everyone's like, okay, police, 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 police. And if you're an upper middle class white person in Ballard and Magnolia and Walhurst, you can put in a sign in your yard that says Black Lives Matter. But have you actually done anything to increase kind of the enrollment of black kids within the city at large? So what would that take? Like, so what you're saying is really important. And I know it's really, really nuanced in the police. Uh, the conversation on police is very nuanced and very complicated on multiple levels. And so part of that is what you're talking about is this extreme segregation that is pretty overwhelming in Seattle. So when, when you talk about, like, if that response is, hey, I hear you going to protest, I hear you saying that Black Lives Matter and that that this is important, but like, what are you actually doing to change it? What are some suggestions that you have? Like, what are the questions that you ask about things that actually need to change systemically in Seattle to make a difference? Number one is exclusionary zoning. Exclusionary rezoning refers to what a specific region is zoned for. So for example, there are certain parts of Seattle where you can only have a single family house. You can't build, you know, a small condo. You can't build apartment buildings, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, those parts of Seattle are the most expensive and they're going to be the most white. And then those parts also have schools that tend to have huge PTA funds. So, for example, Hmm. the schools with the largest white populations also have the lowest low-income populations, and they are Ballard and Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. What else about them? They have PTA uh, endowments or wealth that is in excess of millions of dollars. Do you know what Rainier Beach's wealth is? Their PTA and foundation? It's zero. Chief South? Zero. Cleveland? Zero. Franklin? Zero. So I would much rather you create middle and low-income housing in different parts of the city and allow people to access those parts of the city, kids, and go to school in places that have more aggregate resources. That would go way further than all of the police things. But the problem is, then you run into the people who run the city. Because it's easier to say things than actually do things. And that gets back to the very beginning of our conversation. We're talking about what's the harm when you start when you start policing language, one of the things that can happen, and I know it's complicated, and I I honestly don't know how I feel about a lot of this. But I do know that when you start policing language, and people not only on one hand, get scared to say things. So then because they don't say things, we don't really know what they believe. And then they can't learn and they can't grow. But also people can learn the exact things they're supposed to say, and then get away with not really believing them, right? And so I think in Seattle, it's a perfect example of, to be honest, we all know what you're supposed to say. Everybody knows what you're supposed to say to come across like you belong here. So the problem is, if it's so easy to learn what you're supposed to say, how do we know what people actually believe? And then you look at their actions, and I'm like, how is there a difference between like, 
really surface level example is going to these protests, which are really important. But I, I just keep having this question. I was like, what does it mean that you're leaving this protest where you're saying that black lives matter and are important? And then you're going back to your $800,000, $900,000 house in a neighborhood that no one but upper class white people can afford. And, and that conversation is not talked about that often, at least here. And I agree. And there are times in my class where I brought this front and center and I'm like, I could go through data and find ways in which a white wealthy subgroup manipulates things to their advantage. And it's not going to be hard for me to find. I could probably look to see who, you know, you can go and Google and start to find out people who are against development. I'm like, who are against development. And when they're against development, they're basically against allowing their part of the city to get more dense, allowing low-income housing to move in or medium or middle-income housing. And I'm like, it's really easy to be in favor of something where you feel like you have to do nothing. Mm -hmm. All you need to do is show people that you're doing something. And that becomes a yeah. big problem and it worries me. I worry because most people will agree that racial justice true racial justice is best applied to young people because that they're, they're the ones who are going to be able to take any opportunity and do more with it. Any opportunity, you know, what percentage of all, you know, people go through school, you know, unless it, if you, if you exclude homeschool, you're talking about high nineties percentages. Let's fix that. Let's make sure that a poor kid in South, the far south part of the city can get the same education as a rich kid in Laurelhurst. And how do you do that? And don't forget, Seattle used to have racial busing. We used to have racialized bu busing and we ended it. What do you think about that? Uh, what do you think about racialized busing? I think it's a fantastic idea. I am okay. very, very much in favor. I believe integration is very necessary. And one of the reasons it's become very necessary is, part of it is, there's not enough black teachers to go around. You want, there is no way in current America to give a white kid and a poor black, poor Hispanic kid the same things in different places. Okay, mm -hmm. then let's make sure they're in the same place. Same mm -hmm. place. And that's what I worry about. You know, for example, I taught at a school where over 20% of the kids were black. There weren't that many black teachers. If I remember, there was, it was four of us total. And the youngest other than me was in their 70s. The youngest other than me was in this. So you had three teachers in their 70s and then me. And that creates an incredible burden on the one black teacher that's young, relatively new to the profession. Right. I saw this silly Facebook thing. One of my friends put up and they were like, everybody comment when the first time you had a black teacher was how old you were and what grade it was. And it was really amazing to see not only how old people were before they actually had, and, and this was like people that were commenting were both white and black and Hispanic and um, had different backgrounds. And not only was it shocking to see how much, 
how old people were, how, how rare that was, but how many of them are like, wow, I've never thought about this because I've ne I never had a black teacher. And just thinking about how formative their education was and only having majority white teachers. I think the lack of racial diversity in the educator pool is one of the largest problems in education. I hmm. think that you want, there is just so little racial diversity. This like two thirds of all teachers are white women. Yeah, I was gonna say, is it mostly white women? It's two yeah. thirds. That is just a huge number. And what does it do? It, cre it creates a, a space that caters to white girls. So what, let me ask you this real fast. Why do you think, what about education attracts white women? I think there's a few things. I think the caring professions have always just attracted women. You know, teaching 60 some, 70 something percent women, I think. Uh, social work is probably 80 something percent women. Uh, nursing, I don't know the numbers, but you, nursing is very kind of a, a women's profession. I think that is what shifts it certainly to, towards women. And I think it's the same income things that teaches, that shifts it away from people of color. That if you're going to go to mm -hmm. college, you better get the best return that you can conceivably get. Don't go to teaching. It's relatively low income. Go and get, you know, go to something and, you know, make more money. The other thing that I see is often in buildings, I've seen black administrators. Mm -hmm. And while this is good, you have to realize where those class, those black administrators came from. They came from being teachers. And I'm just like, man, like, it's great to see you in this position. I think it's fantastic. But man, a, a teacher can hit an individual kid in a way that an administrator cannot, just because you would just have more access with these kids. Okay, so following this up with saying like who Seattle belongs to, how would you answer the question who belongs in Seattle? My answer is like, you know, the stereotypical answer, anyone, like anyone. I really believe anyone belongs in Seattle. And I believe that in a way that like that I believe it to my core. Hmm. I like the, I've moved around a lot, you know, in the last, you know, seven years I've lived in Seattle Minneapolis, Minnesota, Chicago, Washington, DC. And I don't like moving somewhere and feeling like I'm less of a true resident. You know, I pay rent, I'm here. I'm a full resident of this place. And I believe that mindset needs to perpetuate who belongs here. Anyone belongs here. Uh, and some of the culture of Seattle historically has not been open to outsiders. And I understand why, because it makes your rents go through the roof and things like that. And that part aside, you need a place to be welcoming to people in multiple, multiple ways. And it's one of the reasons why I worry about certain initiatives and what they might impl imply. For example, Neighborhoods have always changed. If you put too much emphasis on keeping the neighborhood the same, you're basically mm -hmm. saying these new people belong less than these people who are already there. What about when a neighbor's be neighborhood's being gentrified? Now, when a neighborhood's being gentrified, I always go like this. 
What's the alternative? Do you want to restrict where people can move to? Do you want to restrict who can sell their home? I don't think anyone wants to do that. Like, I, I, I don't think anyone wants to do that. I think what you need to do is go back and create integration. Create as much mm. integration as possible. But at the end of the day, if you're an old black woman that has lived in your house for 50 years and it's now worth $800,000, is the smart thing to tell her not to sell? Why? Why shouldn't she get the financial benefit of the home that she owns? But then where does she, where does she move? Well, if she wants to move, then she can move and rent a place or buy a place somewhere else. If she doesn't want to move, she mm -hmm. shouldn't sell. But I think gentrification is a problem that is very hard to solve because it's yeah. part of people moving around. And when you get into the world right. of preventing human movement within this country, I think it's almost always going to be net negative. Yes, I believe that it's good to kind of value neighborhoods, but value neighborhoods in excess of allowing people to move where they want. I don't think it's a worthwhile trade off. I remember this very specifically after you showed up at my door that one day, a couple weeks later, we went and had went out to a, have a beer, a cider or something. And you had just moved into um, a neighborhood that I thought that I really liked. Oh, really? That was like a cool neighborhood in Seattle. But I had just gone through this really intense time with my family where we had been kicked out of multiple places in the neighborhood that we were in. Um, our lease was broken. And it was always because the owner assured us that they weren't going to kick us out. But then a developer came, offered more. And then we had been living in the attic of our friend because we couldn't find a place to like with me and my sister and our two kids because we couldn't find anywhere to rent. Because eight different times we like uh, went and applied for it. They selected us and then called us eight different times and said, Hey, there's this couple from Amazon that's offering us $800 more a month. Can you match it? If not, we're going to give it to them. And so I was in this place where it had been so hard. It was a really difficult time to find places to rent. And we were getting priced out by people that had better jobs and higher income than us. And you said something like, Oh, we just moved into this neighborhood. Um, it was a different neighborhood. And I was just like, said something about was talking to this. And you said, Hey, why don't I belong here any more than you do? Why am I not a Seattleite anymore? Any, why am I less of a Seattleite than you? And just cause you've been here more years. And I just really thought about it. And I realized in that moment, yeah, I was upset because I was just jealous. I couldn't afford it. And you could, and it really threw it back on me and you weren't doing it in like a, a, a lack with a lack of sensitivity. It was just this question of where is my like frustration appropriately placed? And oftentimes we talk about it in these big things of like, it's not fair and it's not equitable. But in reality, all it was, was I was upset that I couldn't live there. And you were just calling that to the surface of saying, Hey, who does, who does, who belongs here? Anyone that can afford to live here. And so will you talk just for a minute about that feeling in Seattle about the tech employees versus everyone else and how it's talked about? It's funny because, you know, first school I taught at was mostly low income, mostly kids of color. And we would talk about gentrification. And I'd be like, guys, I'm black. I moved here. I pay relatively high rent. Am I a gentrifier? And I can pay higher rent. Am I a part of the problem? What is the solution? Do you think we should prevent transactions from occurring? I think it ultimately comes down, the solution side comes down to, basically, you need to build much more housing. 
we need, and that goes back to the zoning things. You need to have places like, you know, like Ballard and Magnolia and Laurelhurst to have the same densities as places like perhaps Fremont. And if you have those densities match, there's just going to be more housing available. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what the answer is in the short term. Like I can always say build more houses, that, that can be done. But in the short term, it becomes yeah. very difficult because you have a kid, and I've had kids who told me, I used to live in the, in the central district. We had to move. Then I lived in West Seattle. We had mm -hmm. to move. Mm -hmm. And they will basically ask me, was this fair? And then I would be like, oh, man, I don't know if it was fair, but I find it appropriate. And that's to say, like, a person should be allowed to increase their rent. Like, it's their property. They should be able to, to, to create their own rental prices. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I don't feel comfortable with, with very young people, 15-year-olds, being displaced multiple times due to pricing. It's interesting. I, that phrase is really interesting that you just said. It's not fair, but it's appropriate. And I think how often we knew, we, we don't nuance conversations enough to say that. Like, maybe this is appropriate, but it's still not fair. And what do we do with that? I don't know. Man, even today, I was talking to my kids about the phrase ACAB, you know, all cops are bastards. And I, and I say, things are difficult. And I said, I don't like that phrase for one key reason. It disincentivizes people to become cops. I'm like, if you guys, and I told my class, if you guys start, created a tab, all teachers are bastards. <laughs> and you guys started shouting it across the streets. I'm like, man, I would think of doing a different job. Like I would feel like a pariah. And at some level, we need police. At some level, we need police. And we want as many applicants as possible so we can mm -hmm. be selective about who we choose and who eventually does the job. I've had one student in particular who would have been a fantastic cop. Fantastic. I've been emailing him every six months, telling him, you should do it. You should do it. And the environment like this is going to disincentivize him from doing it. Right. You said something to me the other day, and can you can you repeat this about how, because during the pandemic, the amount of people that are applying to be nurses is going up and the amount of people applying to be in police is going down and how that affects the quality. Will you speak a little bit to that? In general, the more applicants you have, the higher, the better your applicant pool. You, you, you know, you see the top universities in America, the Ivy League schools, Stanford, other places like that, get, you know, tens of thousands of applicants and they can be very selective of who they choose. Now, the pandemic has had people be like, wow, you know, nurses and doctors are doing great things. Maybe I should do this. So there's an influx of people applying to nursing and medical school. I surprise, my guess is that if we wait in four or five years, the new crop of doctors and nurses are going to be just better, better prepared, better skilled, more intelligent than the crop before them. Now, let's put that exact same scenario on police. The crop of police might be worse. And what happens if it's, you know, I know many people have quit Seattle PD. We lost our black female chief of police. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, right. is this going to be a part of the solution to fixing police, you know, in America, fixing police in Seattle? 
or reduction of applications is the last thing we want. We want more people applying, being able to, certainly we need way more women, way more people of color to be doing these jobs so you have people who can build trust with the people who they police and protect. And in this environment, it's going to be tough. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really great. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Let us know what you think and join the conversation at interloperinterloper.com slash podcast, where you can leave us a comment, ask a question, or tell us what we missed or need to go deeper with. Interloper's vision is putting money into the hands of artists, saying the things we aren't supposed to say. If you'd like to support artists or this podcast, go to interloperinterloper.com slash funders to find out ways you can help increase creativity and conversation. Finally, we release the podcasts, new exhibition series, and more on the 29th of each month. The 29th of each month. The 29th of each month. So set your calendars and follow us on Instagram at interloper underscore unlicensed to find out what's next. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Interloper is a project of the Milkshake Club, which is powered by Shenpike. This episode was produced, edited, and recorded by Connor Walden and Tiffany Danielle Elliott. The song you heard on the podcast today is Lofi and La Fila de la Totiria by Palma Sur. <laughs>